Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Mary and Austin went to see her husband, Johnny, nearly every day at his nursing home until the facility started limiting visitors because of the coronavirus. Now they see each other on FaceTime. Marion. Yes, I'm here. Can you see me? I can see you now. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next, a story of separation after 70 years of marriage. Plus, there's a drug program in Massachusetts where police officers persistently check in with drug users until they're ready to get clean. At first, I definitely was skeptical, like, oh my God, officer who? I'm going to call an officer for help and admit that I have a problem. And New England musician Heather Maloney left music for a silent meditation retreat. But that's where she found songwriting. What was missing from my love for music was having something to say. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, 10 public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. Everyday life looks a lot different right now. We're all trying to slow the spread of the new coronavirus. Among the essential services hit hard by this sudden social isolation, homeless shelters. Keeping up services for homeless clients has proven to be a challenge as shelters deal with limited beds and supplies and a dramatic decline in the number of volunteers. Maine Public Radio's Robbie Feinberg has more. Hey, thanks. On a recent morning, Katie Spencer-White walks through the entrance of Waterville's mid-main homeless shelter to a nearly empty lobby. And it's so quiet. Our parking lot is usually full. You'd struggle to get a parking space. And I drove on today, and it's just it's almost empty. So this is, this is our new normal. And that new normal has posed serious challenges for shelters like this one, where she serves as executive director. White says it's not easy to follow CDC-recommended social distancing guidelines in an area where almost 50 guests sleep only a few feet from each other. It's like summer camp, very, very condensed, all under one roof, where we've got, you know, rooms of eight beds uh, and then communal dining. There's lots of things that we are changing to adapt to the crisis, but it does become a a matter of square footage. There's only so far you can spread people out before you hit the wall. So So the shelter has been forced to get creative. And you can see right now we've broken all the furniture down and we're hoping... Here in the shelter's former conference room, the tables and chairs have been pushed into a corner. The shelter plans to convert the room into a makeshift dorm. And if needed, it'll be used as an isolation space for anyone who may have been exposed to the new coronavirus. But with few medical supplies and little expertise, White is still unsure how staff will care for those in need. It's a full house. You can't isolate people. And, and how do you bring employees? How do, you, how do I ask staff to care for sick people without the proper equipment? So now we are really focusing on immediate triage and making sure people have the safest possible place to stay 
in place and self-isolate as needed, which is not so easy. Stephanie Prim, the executive director of the Knox County Homeless Coalition and the chair of the statewide Homeless Council, says shelters across Maine are wrestling with similar questions. Prim worries that as cases of COVID-19 continue to climb, the demands on service providers may only increase. We're anticipating that. We're already seeing, as of today, um, some situations where family members who have been supportive of a couch surfing situation are now so fearful that they are uh, essentially kicking people out of the household because they're worried about infection. So there's a number of things contributing to what we are anticipating as a significant wave. Prim says state agencies have made things easier by adjusting some bureaucratic rules, and she and other advocates are pushing for policy changes within the state's general assistance program to ensure that residents who do have homes will be able to stay. But with shelters, including hers already full, Prim says her organization is being forced to look at other options to house or isolate them. We are actively trying to identify some empty buildings and spaces, even a hotel that might be a possibility in the area that might be able to be tapped into uh, during this time for people that are needing a safe place to live. And beyond housing space, providers are also struggling to find enough help. Mark Swan, the executive director of Portland-based Preble Street, says the nonprofit is searching for new volunteers after seeing a dramatic decline in recent days. And, you know, we have three soup kitchens, three meals a day. We need a lot of volunteers, and losing so many so quickly is a challenge. And also food drives. And You know, we have uh, an annual food drive in partnership with a local company, and we went from 3,200 pounds of food, which was donated last year, to 300 pounds this year. In an email, Maine Housing spokesperson Kara Korshen says that the agency is, quote, currently working with DHHS to help address the unique challenges homeless shelters across Maine are facing with the COVID-19 pandemic and are pursuing a range of options. DHHS Commissioner Jean Lambrew echoed that response at a press conference, saying the effort is being shared with nonprofit organizations and city officials across the state. We are working with all of them to try to find pragmatic solutions that are public-privately done to ensure homeless people like other residents of Maine can stay safe. But advocates warn that more supports will have to be put in place in the coming months, as layoffs and business closings could leave even more Mainers in need of social services. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Robbie Feinberg. Nursing homes and assisted living centers across New England are drastically limiting access to visitors. It's an effort to protect elderly populations that are especially vulnerable to COVID-19. But this is isolating some couples away from each other. For the Austins, a Vermont couple who began dating just after World War II, it's the first time they've been apart. Vermont Public Radio's Nina Keck reports. Marion Austin is petite with short white hair and bright blue eyes. We sit in a Rutland living room, looking through old photo albums. The the wedding picture, that was who he was when I met him. Johnny Austin. He was so handsome. You know, the word cute. Marion met John in New Jersey in the late 1940s. He was 20, I was 16. Um, They met in church. 
we were sitting in the balcony. He was in the last row, and I was in the next to the last row, and we kind of chatted up during the service and then afterwards went out for a soda. Probably six or eight months later, he asked me to go steady. When did you get married? So we were married when I was 19 and he was 23. October 7th, 1950. So this year in October, it'll be 70 years. By 1969, the couple had three kids and were tired of New Jersey, so they moved to Vermont. Marion was a housewife, and John was a home builder. When the kids were grown, Marion went back to school. She got a master's degree in counseling psychology and went to work. John kept building houses until he retired in his 60s, and Marion says he stayed active, skiing and playing tennis. But Parkinson's and dementia slowly took their toll, and caring for John became too much for Marion. When somebody has dementia, um, somebody used the term ambiguous grieving because you're grieving for someone who's still here. He moved into the Pines, a nursing home in Rutland, in July 2018. Marion, who was 86 at the time, says it was the first time in her life she'd lived by herself. So it was beginning a series of letting go. You know, letting, first of all, letting go and letting someone else take care of him. I still did his laundry. Finally let go of that, let them do that. You know, it was just a constant series of letting go. But she couldn't let go of daily visits to see John, yeah. to tell him she loved him and make sure he had what he needed. This is where, this is where the for better or worse comes in, you know? Marion says she's visited John nearly every day until last week, when nursing homes everywhere began to limit outside visitors to protect clients from the COVID-19 virus. It's not terrible or awful, it's just different. Marion understands and appreciates the precautions, and having visited so often, she trusts the staff. I don't have any worries about his care. I know the people that are personally going to be sure that he's okay. There's a gallon activities that always make sure his hearing aids are stuck in there. You know, that there's somebody else that'll make sure he gets to all the musical programs. Okay. Is it okay if I call? Yeah. Because this is a good time, I guess. And now, staff at the Pines are helping her FaceTime with John, since she can't be there in person. Hello. There she is. <laughs> Hi, honey. We called her. Yeah. Can you see me? Can you see me? John? Yes, I'm here. Can you see me? I can see you now. You did your job. Marion rests her cell phone on her lap and begins to visibly relax and laugh with John and his nurse as she hears about his day, including how he'd had dinner the night before with a friend at the nursing home. They talk for about three minutes. Okay. Last night you had dinner with Lena and you two were laughing. Yeah. Joking. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but, you, but we're still married, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I hope so. <laughs> we are, honey. We'll find, out what, we'll find out when you get here. Yeah, well, I'll get there when I can, okay? I, I can't get there just yet. I'll get there, I'll get there sometime. Okay? Yeah. Don't forget, sweet. I love you. I love you. I love you. Bye. Bye.
Visits with John are always bittersweet, she tells me. Their conversations aren't real conversations anymore. And even when she'd see him in person at the nursing home, she admits she'd feel exhausted in the elevator heading home. But not being able to see him is harder, and she worries he'll forget her. I think the only way we're going to know the direct, the full impact is how long, the length of time this is going to go on. Because if it goes on a week, two weeks, if I'm not able to go for a month, I don't know. Will he know me then? Maybe not. The concerns over COVID-19 are real, and she and her husband are at high risk. She gets that. But it's hard. Her caregiver's support group has canceled its meetings, and isolation looms. I try not to be afraid. I, I, this, I don't want to live my life in fear. Um, the two words that come to mind are trust and gratitude. I, I have a lot of trust and gratitude for what is. She knows the staff at the nursing home are doing the best they can with what they can. That's why from the day John went in that nursing home, well, even before, I have disciplined myself to take one day at a time. I'm, I'm still learning. I haven't gotten there. But, but if I can stay in the present, I'm not thinking about how long is this going to go on. I can't. So if all I can have right now is FaceTime with my husband, I'll be grateful for that, she says, and get through another day. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nina Keck in Rutland, Vermont. I'm recording this show in my bedroom closet. Right now I'm sandwiched between the hot water heater and my suitcase. And I'm lucky. My job allows me to work remotely. But for a lot of people, that's not an option. And as states ask non-essential businesses to close and plead with people to stay home, many New Englanders are now out of a job. Is that your experience? Have you had to file for unemployment? Or are you an owner of a small business? Tell us about that by calling our comment line at 860-275-7595. Again, that's 860-275-7595. And we look forward to hearing from you. Coming up, what if a drug user is not ready to accept help? In a Massachusetts program, police officers and public health officials keep showing up till the drug user is ready to get clean. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. Croy Paquette was addicted to heroin, cocaine, and alcohol for most of his 20s, And he had many stints in jail and rehab. Now sober, he volunteers with the drug addiction and recovery team in Massachusetts. Paquette is a Tennessee native and a natural storyteller. One of the stories he often tells is about the last day he used drugs. So December 10th, 2017, I had relapsed at the sober house. I caught an Uber to a meeting in Amherst. 
and I raised my hand and I, I was, I was in a 12 step meeting. I raised my hand and I said, I needed help. And then, uh, you know, I'm the, I'm the type of guy that asks for help and then leaves the room. And uh, I went outside and this lady came outside and she said, uh, we need to put together a plan for you because the one that's going on between your ears isn't looking so good. And that wasn't far from the truth. Uh, it was actually a horrible plan. My plan was to continue uh, using drugs to maybe meet my demise. And uh, she, she asked me uh, if she could take me to detox, if I was willing to go to detox. And, uh, and I agreed. And in the middle of a snowstorm on December 10th, she drove me to Greenfield from Amherst. I didn't know her. I didn't know her name. And um, she got me there. I got out of the car, and uh, she pulled out what seemed to be Christmas shopping bags out of the back of her car. And she pulled a brand-new Eddie Bauer winter jacket out of the Christmas shopping bag, and she ripped the tags off of it. And she handed it to me, and she said, you might need this. And uh, I don't know if it's because I'm from Nashville, Tennessee, and I think a sweatshirt is a winter jacket. Um, that might have had something to do with it. Or the fact that she may have thought that I wasn't even going to walk into that detox when she pulled off, that I may not have been ready, but I was going to need a coat because it was a snowstorm outside. I don't think she cared which option it was. She felt in her heart that I needed a winter jacket. And I probably owe some sort of amends to her husband or son, whomever that jacket was for. But I went in there, and that's the day that I gave up. That's the day that I gave up all my best ideas on how to stay sober and be healthy and happy. That's the day I got sober. Corey Paquette lives in Belchertown, Massachusetts, and helps with outreach to drug users and overdose survivors. That story was produced by Karen Brown of New England Public Radio. People addicted to opioids often stay under the radar until it's too late. Health leaders are developing ways to get drug users help and keep them alive until they're ready to get clean. In one type of outreach gaining traction around Massachusetts, police officers collaborate with public health departments. Here's Karen Brown with the breakthroughs and challenges of this approach. Emily Lagaviets has to sign visitors into her recovery program in a grand Victorian house run by the Gondara Center in Holyoke. K-R-Y-N? K-A-R-E-N. She's been living here since getting out of a detox program last fall. She had to give up her phone for two weeks and only just got car privileges. We got 24, 48, 72 hour passes. At 29, she doesn't mind the restrictions. She's grateful she's alive to follow them after a decade of serious addiction. I had gone down a pretty dark path at that time. Lagaviets traces her turnaround to a 911 call last year in Ware, Massachusetts. High on heroin, she'd stolen her mother's car. And when she returned it a few hours later, Officer John Casella was waiting in the driveway. In the past, he might have immediately read her her rights. Because for the longest time, the whole idea was, you know, arrest, arrest. Instead, Casella tapped on the car window and told Lagavietz she wasn't in trouble. She didn't believe him. Yeah, I sat in my car actually and closed the window on him a couple times, and then I opened it a crack, like, what do you want? And... He stood there patiently, and he said, you know, I'm here to help you. I want to help you. And I would roll up my window and look the other way. 
through the glass, he explained he was part of a program called the Drug Addiction and Recovery Team, known as DART, and asked if he could try her another time. He came back to my house again and again and again. This is fairly typical for the DART program, a recent partnership between police and public health. For people using drugs, a 911 call is often the first time they get on the radar of any authority. In Lagavietz's case, it was for theft. In many cases, the call is for an overdose. Traditionally, if the person survived, they were charged with possession or sent to the hospital. That's what you did. Those were your two options. Northampton officer Adam Van Buskirk wanted a new option. In 2016, he worked with the city health department to train police on a voluntary basis in the DART approach. After the immediate crisis is over, DART officers follow up and offer help. That could be a warm bed for the night, the name of a recovery coach, or a ride to detox. They'll also refer people to needle exchange and give out the overdose rescue drug, Narcan. That way, if there is a day where you do want to stop using drugs and you do want to get into recovery, you're going to be alive to see that day. DART operates in 13 cities and towns in Hampshire County, and it's expanding into Hamden County. More than 150 communities across Massachusetts have adopted their own versions. But even as police get used to this non-judgmental role, it's not always an easy sell to drug users. And some people are very open and they'll talk to you. Other people, ah, get out of here, I don't want any help, you know, stupid cops, get out of here, whatever. Jeffrey Goulet is a DART officer in South Hadley. Not everyone's at that point in their life where they want to stop. So that's kind of, that's another thing that we um, learn, just the way people think as far as the people who are using. Like many drug users, Emily Lagavietz's addiction started with a painkiller prescription, then illegal pills she bought on the street. I was seeing thousands and thousands of um, you know, blue little perk 30s right in front of my face. And I was going to be sick the next day if I didn't have more. By the time she stole her mother's car, she'd lost her job, her apartment, her fiancé, and she hadn't taken a shower in six months. I mean, I bathed myself, like, at the sink. I didn't brush my teeth for weeks at a time. But even after Officer Casella responded to her mother's 911 call, she wasn't ready to accept help, certainly not from law enforcement. At first, I definitely was skeptical, like, oh, my God, officer who? I'm going to call an officer for help and admit that I have a problem? When Casella showed up, Lagavietz would often pretend not to be home. But after several weeks, Casella talked her into going with him to Dunkin' Donuts, where he introduced her to a recovery coach named Susan Daly. They gave Lagavietz a little care package. Fidget spinners, hand sanitizer, just all stuff with a Dart logo on it. And they gave her a plastic bottle of Narcan, which she didn't want her parents to see. She threw it in her bedroom trash. She did start meeting with Daly, but didn't stop using drugs. You know, she knew something wasn't right. You could see in my face and my weight and just everything that I wasn't okay. Most DART officers and coaches say they've had to accept this roller coaster of addiction, the relapses, the sad endings. That's the most frustrating part is like you don't want to see anybody fail. Officer Goulet. We drove one guy all the way up to Pittsfield to go to the hospital there. Because he's like, I want to get treatment. This is it. This is my time. I hit rock bottom, ready to go. Then he was up there for a few days. He called here like, yeah, yeah, I'm doing good. And then all of a sudden he went off the radar. Lagavietz was almost one of those sad endings. Last August, about six months after she first got involved with the DART program, she was doing heroin alone at her father's house in Ware. 
I started to feel, you know, something going through my body, like an electric shock almost, and then my heart, it would be zinging through my body, and then it would go, and then it would hit my heart, and my heart would beat real fast. And I started to be unable to breathe. I was dripping sweat, and I said to myself, oh, my God, I'm having an overdose. That's when she remembered the Narcan she'd been given. I found the Narcan in my trash. I opened it up, and I narcan myself. She called out to her iPhone and asked Siri to call an ambulance. From the ER, she called her coach, Susan Daly. And I was crying because I really wanted to tell her that um, she saved my life. Lagaviets felt like she'd been through a tornado. And all that was left in the center was me in, like, a vast land of ruin, you know, and having Susan and Officer Casella there, it's life-changing. That was the moment she decided to accept their help for real. Daly helped her get into a 10-day detox program, supporting her through five difficult days on the waiting list. From there, Lagavietz went into a 30-day rehab, then the recovery house, where she expects to stay until next fall. This is getting pretty messy, especially yep. for someone like me who doesn't know. Almost a year since that first 911 call, Lagavietz and Officer Casella go to weekly pottery class together in where? What was the purpose of this now? Just to get the air bubbles out? Yeah, you um, have to... Casella takes people here on his own time, an activity to fill their pleasure center in place of drugs. It's like when you're a little kid and you play with Play-Doh, you know what I mean? But for grown-ups. Yeah. <laughs> They talk a bit about her recovery. Casella hadn't seen Lagaviet since the overdose. But mostly they sit on neighboring pottery wheels, throwing down lumps of wet clay. Watch out for his splash. It's dangerous. Way off. That's okay. Do it again. Not all Casella's relationships are this close. He says he's reached out to about 60 overdose survivors. Only half of them got back to him, and fewer still stay in touch. Sometimes they tell me they're not doing so good, and... So we figure out what we can do from there. Like, this looks perfect to me, you know what I mean? As Lagaviets shapes her clay bowl, she says she feels healthy, but she can't predict how she'll be doing next week or next month. She nods over to her purse. I have Narcan right there in my bag all the time. You know, I'll never hide Narcan again. And if she or anyone else has to call 911, she won't turn down the help again either. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Karen Brown. This story was part of a series on overdose response teams from New England Public Radio. We'll have a link to the entire series at our website. That's nextnewengland.org. After the break, Heather Maloney's journey from singer to silent meditator to singer-songwriter. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. The coronavirus pandemic has forced musicians across the country to cancel concerts and tours, instantly zapping a key source of income. Heather Maloney is one of those artists. She's a singer-songwriter based in western Massachusetts. She released her fourth full-length studio album last summer, Soil in the Sky. And she was supposed to be touring the country. Instead, like many musicians, she's live-streaming concerts from her home. Hey, guys. Hi. Welcome. Hi from Syracuse. 
Heather Maloney has collaborated with bands like the Avett Brothers and Band of Horses, among others. And the New York Times describes her music as utterly gorgeous and visceral. I spoke with her last year about her new album and her circuitous journey to writing songs. Heather Maloney, thanks for coming into the studio. Thank you for having me. So I do want to start out with a song. It's from your recent album, and it's called All in Your Name. You're going to play an acoustic version of the song. But before you do, I'm wondering if you could talk about the story behind this song. This is sort of one of my most direct, uh, probably the song that most directly deals with loss. And uh, I wrote it shortly after having experienced a loss in my own family. Um, And uh, it kind of felt like a really raw and personal song. I know you uh, you prefer not to talk about the specifics of who the song is about. I'm wondering if you could talk about um, at what point in your personal grieving process you were able to sit down and write this song. Gosh, I mean, the, this was one of the writing experiences that I had right in the thick of the experience. So I, I, it was maybe within three days that I kind of locked myself in a little room and and picked up my guitar and just used it as a tool to process what I was experiencing. Let's hear all in your name from your album, Soil in the Sky. Ain't that your jacket in the mudroom? Ain't those your shoes there by the door? You never left the house without them Now you don't need them anymore Ain't those your keys, they're on the table And they've gone everywhere you go They opened every door you walked through Turned every engine on your road I'd run those keys out to the driveway Joke that you wouldn't have gone far And now you're further than you've ever been from me Than you've ever been from me And like a song I can't see you But you move me just the same Like the radio waves all through the air You invisibly make it okay Like the moon I can't touch you But you pull me just the same Like the crashing of waves all through the ocean I rise and I fall in your name All Say at first the pain is piercing An angry bee inside your chest But it can't sting like that forever And even heartbreak takes a rest They say just like a sword in battle A sharpened blade will slowly dull With every thought inside my mind that you possess It'll hurt a 
so much. I think what the what the listeners can't see is how um, how engaged in the song you are as you're playing. And I, I, I actually saw you play at a festival this summer. And one of the things that stuck out to me as you were playing the song was how many members of the audience, including me, were crying as you were playing. Um, and I wonder what that's been like to to play this song and have that kind of impact on your audience. Um, I really appreciate that question in particular because it's a phenomenon that I've noticed over the past couple of years in particular. I think what, I, what I'm really promoting at, at my shows is uh, like a willingness to feel the entirety of the emotional spectrum and kind of normalize uh, something like sadness. So I've – at first I felt a little – weird about, you know, the the tears, the tears phenomenon, but now it feels like something I really um, appreciate. I want to switch gears. Um, you're based out of Western Massachusetts now, but you grew up in New Jersey. And what was your childhood like and how has it influenced who you are as a musician today? Um, I had kind of a weird childhood. I guess a lot of people say that, but um, I grew up in a house without television or sugar and um, the main form of entertainment uh, that everyone kind of revolved around was a record player. So from the time I was very little, kind of the the, the biggest influences on me uh, were musicians and mainly like folk musicians and, and songwriters from the 60s and 70s. So a lot of Joni Mitchell and Joan Baez and Bob Dylan, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. I mean, those guys were sort of my my centerpiece um, from the start. So when you were 20, you were studying to get have a music de- degree in operatic singing, um, but you quit. 
and you went to a silent meditation retreat in Massachusetts. I think it was called Insight Meditation Society. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Uh, what happened? Why, why make that change? I, I knew that I loved music at that point in my life. Um, but my love for music felt like it had uh, an extent. Like I reached this point where my love for music kind of ended and then there was this empty space. And what I realized years later at the meditation retreat center was that um, what was missing from my love for music was having something to say uh, because I had been studying how to say it. I had been studying how to use my voice. I had been studying music theory. But the meaning underneath all of it wasn't really complete. And I mean, I can't say that it's complete now. The motivating factor that I was most aware of when I quit was pretty simple. And the reason why a lot of people are drawn to meditation and that was suffering. <laughs> I was um, I was depressed in college and I uh, had a lot of, you know, childhood traumas that I hadn't really done any work on or or dug into. They were just sort of you know, when you have these unchecked parts of your um, emotional self, they're in the driver's seat. And I had really lived that way up until my early 20s. Yeah. yeah. So as you're there at the meditation retreat center, I think you were there for about three years. Um, what was the point where you started writing songs for the first time? Um, I was on staff there. So um, and when you're on staff, there most of the land and the and most of the buildings are designated spaces of what they call noble silence, which not only means that you're not speaking to people, but you're not communicating in pretty much almost any way. And so I would journal, and sometimes that journaling would kind of turn into poetry. But there was a retreat, and about three days in to that week, I just had so much, like, pain in my heart. And then on day three, this little melody with words attached came worming its way into my mind. And it was like this, it was like what they would call like a mantra. And the lyrics were, if your heart is aching, let it ache. And and I heard it with a melody. Do you remember what the melody was? <laughs> Do you want me to sing it right now? <laughs> if it, just a little snippet. Okay. Um, if your heart is aching, let it ache, let it weigh, let it throb, let it break. If your heart is aching, let it ache. So that was the whole thing. And it was like the first moment that I realized I, I actually have things to say that I feel inspired by. So you've you've released multiple albums since that time at the Meditation Retreat Center. Some of them were self-released. Some were with the, the record company that you're now signed with. Um, in, in 2014, you released an EP with another Massachusetts band called Darling Side, and you covered Woodstock by Joni Mitchell, who you listened to as a kid. And let's just take a listen for a moment to that cover. Thank you. 
Okay, that's you singing with Darling Side, a cover of Woodstock by Joni Mitchell. And after you released that cover, a New York Times blog piece compared you to Joni Mitchell. Is it safe to say that she influenced you and is an idol of sorts? (laughs) Very safe to say. (laughs) (laughs) She's probably the number one for me. (laughs) Yeah. And how do you find her uh, entering your music? Gosh, uh, I think first and foremost, when I really discovered, like, the confessional aspect of her songwriting, she can just break my heart and build me up again in a song. And, like, that's am- like that's magic. And I, I want to, like, taste that magic. So that was probably, like, the first realization about, like, what Joni does for me that I, I realized I wanted to so let's let's hear some more music. Could you play the song What I Don't Know Too also from your most recent album? Yes. What you look at every day I woke up alone today To the ocean spray To the sound of waves Rush like blood from my head As I rose And somewhere in the morning haze I caught an image of your face An old friend and a stranger All in one Honey, there's no way that I'll ever How I love what I do Honey, I love What I don't know too I drove through the blue dawn In Oregon to California's sun Along a sea that was strangely to my right and as the sun warmed up my steering wheel, I remembered how your body feels familiar, but always a little new. Honey, there's no way that I'll ever know oh, everything about you, but oh, how I love what I do. Honey, I I don't know to Trying to squeeze the sea and the sky into a song My little eyes behold enormous things I'd see it all if I had wings But none of it has majesty like yours Honey, there's no way that I'll ever know Everything about you, but oh, how I love what I do I love 
That's my guest, Heather Maloney, playing What I Don't Know Too from her album Soil in the Sky, which came out this summer. So your career has been building and building. Um, Back when you stopped pursuing music for a brief time to go to the meditation um, retreat center, you were trying to kind of escape that and find your real purpose in music, I guess. And do you ever... Do you feel like there will never be that moment again where you just want to say, oh, music, I need a break? (laughs) Um, Music feels really integrated now into like, I I think my my life felt pretty compartmentalized when I was in my 20s or my early 20s. And now music feels like not just my job, but it also is my healing and it's it's a big part of my social life. I don't know if I explained that totally. Well, it's almost like the music writing has replaced what you needed from the meditation retreat center in a way. In a large way, yeah. And I still need to meditate. But yeah, <laughs> but, um, yeah. yeah. It, music has really become such a big part of just growing and and who I am. Yeah. Heather Maloney is a singer-songwriter based in Massachusetts. Heather, thank you so much for talking with me. Morgan, thank you for the amazing question. Thank you for having me. Sometimes plans go awry. That seems to be happening a lot right now. But this is not a story about the new coronavirus. No, this is an update on a question a Vermont Public Radio listener asked the show Brave Little State. The question won in the podcast's recent public voting round. That's where listeners tell VPR what they want the station to cover. Here's Emily Corwin. In January, listener Julie Corwin joined the ranks of winning BLS question askers. Yes, her last name's Corwin. No, we're not related. I have passed by the camel a couple of times, not too often, but every time I passed by, I just like got happy <laughs> and wondered... Was that a camel? Julie wanted to know about this camel she'd spotted as she drove south on Route 7 in Ferrisburg. And if our social media feed is any indication, you were also curious about that camel. After Julie's question one, you shared gifts of celebrating babies and Will Ferrell and camel emojis. And we were just as excited as you were. Unfortunately, though, we weren't able to answer Julie's question. The camel, who's named Oliver or Ollie, actually died in late February. He was 17, a bit young for a two-humped camel like him. So instead of a profile, we are bringing you a very short remembrance of Ollie. 
We'll start with Ollie's owner, Judith Justo. She is a fiber artist, and according to a 2010 interview she did with the Middlebury campus, Justo kept Ollie around for his fur alongside her herd of merino sheep and an alpaca. When Ollie shed, Justo collected his fur and sent it off to be made into yarn. Justo wasn't keen to chat with us when we reached out, but some of you were. And boy, did you love Ollie. When I was in nursing school... Here's Emily Berry. My friend Alice and I used to commute from Burlington all the way to Castleton, and we would always drive by Ollie the camel in the morning. And on big test days, we would look to make sure Ollie was out, because if he was, it meant we were going to do well on the test. Route 7 just won't be the same without Ollie. This is Jim Squires calling, and my wife Debbie and I are snowbirds. Uh, Whenever we return to the state, we always crank our heads to the uh, right to look for Ollie, and um, we'll be sad to know that Ollie's no longer there. We'll send you off with a final thought from Julie Corwin, our question asker. He was really loved by a lot of people. I think I saw when my question was up for voting, a lot of people really wanted to hear more about him, and people were sort of shouting out their love for him, and so I think he will be missed, and he was really sort of an icon. Rest in peace, Oliver. Vermont will miss you. That story was produced by Emily Corwin of Vermont Public Radio's podcast, Brave Little State. That's our show this week. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WCAI, WGBH, WSHU, and the Public's Radio.